What up, what up, what up? Welcome to episode six of When the Hunt Calls. All right, this is the podcast that is basically me sharing my journey to becoming a bow hunter. Um, and, you know, while I uh, get the opportunity to learn what I can, um, I'm hopefully, you know, helping you guys learn something new as well. All right. So um, in my decision last year to become a bow hunter um, and learn as much as I could about being a hunter in general, one of the things that came up or topics that came up is um, public land, um, public land resources, basically how we as citizens of this great country basically are public land owners. All right. So my guest today is basically the host, not basically, he is the host of an awesome podcast, Wired to Hunt. He is a contributor to um, the Meat Eater website and just Meat Eater uh, as a whole. And he is a newly published author of the book, That Wild Country, all right? If you haven't figured it out by now, my guest is none other than Mark Kenyon, all right? So sit back, relax, enjoy this little hip hop ride, and then hopefully you enjoyed my conversation with Mark. And so, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to When the Hunt Calls. Um, my guest today um is a contributor to meat eater he is a um a, a writer of a new book i believe your first book correct that's correct all right um a book that i thoroughly enjoyed um and i think that's hard to say as a as a big city person myself but i really enjoyed it um so let me allow the gentleman to introduce himself go right ahead hey well thanks for having me on the show cliff uh my name is mark kenyon and like you said, yes, I'm a contributor with the Meat Eater team, the author of That Wild Country, and the host of a podcast of my own called Wired to Hunt. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of the high level of what I do. I also host a show called The Back 40 that's uh, a digital TV show um, that's made in collaboration with Meat Eater. And so yeah, I'm fortunate to be able to write and talk about hunting and conservation and the outdoors for a living. <clears throat> I, can I ask, like, I, I really enjoy your stuff. I really enjoy um, the stuff you put out with Meat Eater. I really enjoyed your book. Um, I just want to brag a little bit. I had pre-ordered it on Amazon and, you know, <laughs> waited for it to, co to come out. I appreciate that, um, man. Thank you. I, I really did enjoy it, um, mainly because it, it was an eye-opener for me, a huge uh, piece of, let's say, educational material, mainly because coming from New York City, um, Again, I'm I'm not that familiar with with public lands. So, how did like is this something you've taken up? You took up later on in life, or is this something you grew up in? So it was a little bit of both. Um, I grew up uh, going up to uh, northern Michigan. Uh, our family had a little cabin up there, and that's where I learned to do a lot of the outdoorsy things that I've come to love: hunting and fishing and hiking and exploring. And right next to our cabin was a big chunk of state forest. There was a thousands of acres of public land. So I, I kind of knew of this thing that we called public land. And I knew there's these places that we'd go out and hunt and fish and hike and do those things. But I didn't really understand more than that. They were just there. I didn't understand how they got there. 
Um, we did a few family trips to a couple national parks when I was really young and camping and hiking state parks and stuff. But it wasn't until I graduated from college that um, I really started seeking out these places for bigger and bigger parts of my life and spending all the vacation time I had or choosing to you know, live off on public land places sometimes for weeks or months at a time. It became a big part of my life in my 20s and early 30s. And that's when I started understanding like, oh, wow, this isn't just that place next to the cabin. This is actually a national forest or this is a national park or this is a whatever. And that means different things and it allows you different opportunities as a recreator, whether you're hunting or camping or bird watching or, or whatever. Um, so, so yeah, it, it's become increasingly a larger and larger part of my life. Uh, once you kind of realize that there are millions of acres out there that you basically own, that you can go off and do the things that you see on a documentary and TV, you know, it's so easy to see something on Netflix and be like, holy crap, that looks amazing. But I can never do that. But in reality, if you can pay for a tank of gas, you can drive out almost from anywhere in the country. You can drive out to some pretty cool place of public land where you can take off into and you can get lost and you can see animals and you can have a really cool, wild experience. Um, and I think for a lot of people, that's something that can really change your life. Agreed. Agreed. As I learn more and more about um, just the public lands in my state, I've found... Um, even the state parks within New York City that I've spent my whole life totally unaware of. So yeah. it's been a, a great adventure over the last, you know, seven to eight months uh, discovering those parks, um, like I said, within my city. That's now, awesome. um, how'd you get, uh, I guess, how did Wired to Hunt come come about? Because I, I got put onto it early last year, and um, especially when I decided I myself that I wanted to hunt, um, you know, a fellow Instagrammer suggested that I listen, like there were specific episodes he had mentioned that went back as far back as like 2016 that I listened to regarding public land hunts and I became hooked. I like, I try to listen to you as, you know, much as possible, especially being on the road all day with my job. So I'm curious to know, how did Wired to Hunt come about? Well, it's kind of funny. It actually started in New York City. I don't know oh, if you really? that. All right. Yeah. Um, but back in 2008, I had an internship in Manhattan and so I was living in the city for the summer, uh, as a college, you know, I was in between my junior and senior year of college. And, you know, I, I grew up in Western Michigan where I could get outside and do a lot of these things. But when I was there in Manhattan, I felt a little bit claustrophobic. It was just a different kind of, you know, as you know, it's a very different kind of situation than rural Michigan. And I couldn't do the hunting and fishing and hiking and stuff that I usually could do right out my door. So I was getting just kind of antsy. And my job was to work with bloggers and different websites to try to get them to talk about my clients' products. That was kind of the thing that I was doing for my internship. And that made me realize, wow, there's a lot of people out there that are writing about things they love. They're creating blogs and websites about their hobbies and whatnot. Maybe I could do that for hunting. And so one day I came back from my job. I took the subway up to, I, I was staying in like a little dorm room up on the upper west side, I guess it would have been. And mm -hmm. um, got back to my little cinder block room and decided, you know, I'm going to start a website and I'm going to call it Wired to Hunt. And I just started 
learning how to build a website, trying to learn how to become a better writer, trying to learn how to build an audience and connect with new people. And, and that was back in the summer of 2008. And then, um, so the fall of 2009, after I graduated college and started a full-time job, I realized very quickly that that full-time job wasn't what I wanted to do forever. And I thought maybe I could turn Wired to Hunt into a thing that someday is is my life. And so that's when I got really, really serious and um, basically worked on every day from there on out. And um, just trying to build something that would allow me to share my passion for the outdoors and hunting and help a lot of people along the way by sharing my own journey, sharing my experience, my, my mistakes and the different resources that I was finding that helped me, um, try and get those out to, to more people. And so that was kind of the, the way it all began. Nice. And now how did the partnership with, um, with Steve Vanilla and, and the whole like meat eater group come about? Yeah. So, in 2013, I quit my regular job and went full-time running Wired to Hunt. That was my whole job. And uh, so built Wired to Hunt into not just a website and a YouTube channel, but also um, a podcast. And over those next few years, I you know, was building my network of people I knew within the outdoor world. And Steve was one of those guys I got to know. And so I guess it would have been in 2017, I think it was. He reached out to me and said that he was planning to take his mediator TV show and expand it into a broader network of of communicators in the hunting and fishing and conservation space. And he thought that I would be a good fit for that. And so we talked for a long time about what the goals were and the mission for the company and how we could maybe together make a bigger positive difference by bringing like-minded folks together to, to try to represent hunting and fishing in a positive light. And um, ultimately, I decided that was a really great way for me to expand what I was trying to do and reach more people and and ultimately try to do something good with uh, the platform I've been pl- privileged to, to have. So, so that's how it came about. We went on a, a hunt in Alaska together and talked a lot about it and a bunch of months of me debating it and thinking about it and losing sleep over that decision and um, ended up making it. And it's been great. Nice, nice. Now, let's, uh, if you don't mind, I want to touch on your book because um, mm-hmm. I really liked it and it kind of, um, it, it kind of resonated with me, let me say. Uh, um, if you don't mind, can I share a couple of lines with it? Of, oh, of for it? sure. Uh, so, all right. So, um, it's page three, uh, like the second paragraph, and, um, and I'm quoting, I'm reading, I should say, unbeknownst to many, American citizens are collective co-owners of an incredible swath of land across the country, approximately 640 million acres of it. That's roughly 28% of the total United States landmass, an area larger than Alaska, Texas, and New York combined. And this public land from Montana to Manhattan, I like that, and beyond is available for all to use to observe wildlife, camp, hunt, hike, fish, or bike on. Now, the this this was just the start of the book, but I knew I was really going to like it mainly because that hit home for me. I know I, I should be honest with, with the listeners and let them know that that particular paragraph is part of a, a little bit of a larger story, which they can read once they have your book. Um, but um, that paragraph, like, that's me. Like, I really had no clue about this or I had somewhat of an idea, um, which is why I had like 
um, the fact that you touched on Yellowstone, not touched, but you you went in depth about uh, Yellowstone National Park. So how did the book come about and how long did it maybe take you to write it or and compile all that information? Or is it a series of, of memories and, and just recollections? Oh, yeah, it was a long process. Um, at some point, I think in 2016 or 2015, I, I decided that I wanted to write a book. I knew that a book was was a project I wanted to take on someday because I, I'm an absolute bookworm. I love reading, love books, and I love sharing my stories and experiences, and I've, I've been able to do that through Wired to Hunt, and, and I wrote a lot of magazine articles and things like that, so I knew I could write. Um, so a book was something that was this pie-in-the-sky dream, and right around the same time in 2016, late 2015, this whole uh, idea of something called the land transfer movement was starting to pick up a lot of steam. And I talk a lot about it in the book, but just for our cliff notes here, it's basically there was there's some politicians and business people out there that believe that America shouldn't have all these public lands and that instead we should transfer them to states and let them do what they want with them or that we should sell them off and just take the money from them. And so as I was hearing about that and learning more and more about that, I was increasingly concerned um, because I had been fortunate to, to get to spend a lot of time in these places and realize how special they were and how important they were to people in this country. So I thought, hey, this is something that is a, is a real issue, and it's something that I need to learn more about myself. And as I was starting to learn, I was realizing, wow, I'm someone who is very tapped into the outdoor community. I'm a very active outdoors person, and I don't even know a whole lot about how we got these places. I don't really know how these places came to be or the various battles that led to you know, the wins and losses when it came to this landscape across the country that we collectively get to share. And if I didn't know that stuff, then there's probably a whole lot of other people out there that that don't know either. So it seemed to me that this was something that I was passionate about, and there was a need to get this information out there to people in a fun way, in a readable way. And so that's where the idea for the book came. It, it, I decided, like, hey, there, there's this information gap. People need to better understand the history of these places and what's going on right now. And there is also this need to do it in a way that's, like I just said, that is digestible. There was history books out there, but no one wants to read a dense history book, or at least not most average people. So I thought, what if I were to combine that history and that information with a series of my own stories going out and experience these places and, and, and seeing these places, feeling these places, imagining what the future might look like if somehow we screw this up and lose these places. Um, that would be a story that I thought would be interesting and compelling and, and excite me and hopefully then it excite readers. So over the course of several years, um, I was researching and reading and compiling all the information while also then traveling across the country, um, sometimes for months at a time, sometimes just for a week or two here and there, um, hiking and hunting and rafting and fishing and climbing and, and all sorts of different things like that. And, and those are the stories that ended up becoming this book. So several years whole lot of late nights and early mornings and uh it it still feels like a miracle that there's a book sitting in front of me <laughs> that i actually got it done sometimes i gotta pinch myself no i i hear you and i know it's probably a labor of love but the end result is awesome and um Thank your you. your description of the various you know lands that you got the opportunity to hike um you know fish and things like that um 
literally transported me there. So I really, I really appreciated that. Um, you know what I'm saying? Especially coming from somebody from a big city who's never, well, you know, I'm not going to say never. I, um, actually it's funny, the memories that I've forgotten. Cause I honestly, um, got the opportunity back in 2005. I chaperoned a group of 10 New York city teenagers to, um, South Dakota. Oh, nice. So we traveled from, from, um, Indian reservation to reservation. Like we were out at, um, Oh crap! I can't even remember the names, but we were out at Mount Rushmore. We uh, visited Wind Cave National Park. Yeah. Um. Even got a chance to visit, or got a chance to see from a distance, a Crazy Horse Memorial. Um. Things like Very that. Cool. It was really, really great. A great experience. I mean, the experience was meant to be mainly for these, you know, ten high school seniors. Um. But I'm not gonna lie. Uh, as uh, a city city kid myself, it was something great you know what I'm saying it's to this that. day every once in a while i i relish in the opportunity to tell people about the northern lights that i got to see oh wow. you know what I'm saying uh, awesome. i i you know studying that in school is nothing um compared to being able to see them in you know real life yeah so oh, yeah. great book um now i wanted to turn this a little bit educational if if you will um not only for me but for my listeners um, so we, we kind of defined, you know, what public land was and how it like how all of us are public land owners and it's accessible to us for whatever it may be, whether it's a hike, bike, hunt or fish. Um, but I guess what I wanted to know, you mentioned in your book, the BLM, um, the Bureau of Land Management. Yep. All right. What exactly is that? So. The Bureau of Land Management is one of several different government agencies that manage public lands across the country. Um, so there's, in addition to the BLM, there's the National Park Service. They manage the national parks. There's the uh, Forest Service, which manages our national forests. There's um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which manages wildlife refuges. So these are all just different names or categories for different types of public land. Um, so we'll look at two opposite sides of the spectrum. There's the National Park Service that manages our national parks. And national parks are there to protect the, the wild resources, but then also very much to provide for a human experience, uh, a recreational experience with these places. So it's a place that people can come to enjoy these resources, to learn about nature and, and all these different things. So that's what the National Park Service does. It's much more human and tourism focused. Okay. Um, the BLM manages a whole bunch of public lands too but these are much more multiple use and and more so on the extractive use than almost any of the other public land agencies we have out there so some people call the blm lands the, the leftover lands because there was there was a if you can imagine back in the 1800s and into the early 1900s um the united states had had a large swath of of land that it essentially owned um by you know there's a very long and, and pretty uh, grim history of, of how we acquired some of those lands that I didn't get to tackle in this book. Um, but if we if we if we center where we have these lands, they start giving them away to railroad companies and businesses, and then eventually even private citizens through the Homestead Act um, to just get people to move across the country. And they, you know, this is like economic growth, trying to grow the country, getting people to go west start farms, start businesses, do all these different things. And 
during that same process, some folks in the government, like Theodore Roosevelt, said, hey, let's protect some of these places for these future generations. So you started getting some stuff getting protected as national parks. Some places were protected as national forests. Well, eventually, all the kind of quote-unquote best stuff got picked by these different agencies, and you were left with a couple hundred million acres of mostly rangeland, mostly grasslands and sagebrush and desert and quote-unquote leftover lands were given to be managed by the BLM, what eventually was known as the Bureau of Land Management. And so there's a lot of this BLM land in the West in states like Nevada and Utah, um, some in Montana, Wyoming, um, and oftentimes it's, it's used some for hunting and recreation, but also a lot of the extractive industry uses of these lands like uh, oil and gas drilling, mining, um, that's where that kind of stuff typically happens is on these places. So it's a little bit more often off the beaten path, and it's pretty much just in the western United States. Um, that's one, Most of the other agencies have land across the whole country in different places, but the BLM is, is very western-focused. All right. Is, are those the lands that are primarily maybe hunted and fished? So they definitely are part of that, um, but you can also hunt national forests. You can hunt a lot of wildlife refuges. Um, you can hunt BLM land. Um, you can't hunt on national parks, but you can fish in national parks. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of that stuff. And then there's also, so all these things I'm talking about are, are federal public land. There's also <coughs> state public land and even county public land and things like that. So there's state parks in New York that you can hunt and fish on. Um, there's probably in county parks so you can hunt and fish on or hike or whatever you want to do. Um, but yeah, there's, there's all these different kind of tiers of land and different sets of uses that are allowed and, and they're managed a little bit differently based off what those uses are. Nice. Now, um, with this year being an election year, is there any kind of um, legislation maybe that's out there, or maybe not even legislation? Um, are there is there are there any major issues that, let's say, me as a voter should be keeping an eye out for that might affect who I could possibly vote for? Like, is there anything that's that's you know, coming up that might necessarily, you know, tip the balance in terms of, all right, you know what, I'm voting for, for this person because they're in favor of, of, you know, this policy regarding, you know, land management. You know, there's there's a lot of small, not, I want to say small, but there's a lot of local things going on. Um, so, for example, in state, like a state like Minnesota, there's a whole uh, controversy around protecting an area called the Boundary Waters, which is this incredible wilderness area up in the northern part of the state with thousands of lakes and streams and this huge boreal forest, and it's it's all roadless and untouched, and there's wolves and moose and deer, and just a really, really special place. And um, there's a series of companies that want to build sulfide ore copper mines right on the edge of this wilderness and any pollution from those mines would leak right into this wilderness area. Um, so there's things like that. There's local places that are at risk. Um, at a very high level, there certainly are things that we need to pay attention to, but it's in the book I kind of described where we're at right now as this death by a thousand cuts situation there's there's all these tiny things being done they're they're trying to build a mine there along the boundary waters they're trying to build a huge mine in bristol bay in alaska they want to start mining and drilling um the arctic national wildlife refuge another incredible piece of wilderness up in alaska um 
there's all these different things like that that you know I would say are, are hard for someone new to wrap their head around all these things. What I would probably tell you is that during a voting year or during an election year, one of the best things you can do is just communicate what's important to you to the candidates ahead of time so that they know, all right, there's a lot of people that want to make sure that I'm good on public land and the environment. So, and, and this is a time of year when they're, you know, wanting to appeal to the masses. So I'm calling my candidates and I'm saying, hey, I definitely want to make sure that you are going to support our public lands, support funding our public lands. You better not try to transfer or sell them. And let's start also caring about our environment. We, we need our clean air. We need our clean water. Um, we need to keep these basic environmental principles in place. And people, our business interests and politicians are constantly trying to strip those away, um, supposedly to help business. So I think I would just tell you to, to pay attention to that side of the issue um, when it comes to various candidates on your ballot. Take a look and see what their environmental record is. Take a look at what they've ever said about public land and let them know that these things are important to you. That's at a high level, I think, what I'd encourage everyone to try to do a little bit more. Because the only way you get politicians to pay attention and to care about these things is to is to make sure they know there's a whole lot of squeaky wheels out there that care about it, which is which is us. We've got to be those squeaky wheels so we get the grease. You know, it's you know it's funny. I literally um um <laughs> had a conversation with Lantani yesterday and he used the exact words uh that you're using now in terms of being the squeaky wheel. He's a great, it's a great, great role model. Uh, great to hear. Uh, I I learned a lot speaking to him um, yesterday, and um, uh, and learned a lot about uh, not only him but BHA and uh, you know the organization. So that's pretty cool. Great organization. Um, all right, so I am new to hunting. All right, um, like I'm really, really uh, green when it comes to it, specifically bow hunting. Now, if if somebody like myself wanted to um, take it to another level and get further outdoors, like visiting a national park, um, you know, and hike or hunt or fish it, what would be, in your opinion, like the best place to, like, let's say a starter national park, um, what would be the best place to check out? Um, you know, let's keep in mind, uh, I have... Uh, a wife and three kids, something family friendly that you would recommend that as a family could go check out and enjoy. Yeah. So I would tell you to start local and just get comfortable doing things relatively local. Um, because yeah, if you come from, you know, if you're coming from, from New York and you're not having a whole lot of experiences being able to go out in some of these bigger, wilder places, uh, you know, that's, that could be intimidating. I know even myself growing up and doing a lot of this stuff, taking that leap to then go out West and go to places like Yellowstone, that was a little intimidating before I learned some stuff. So I would say, you know, go somewhere within an easy drive and just check it out. Uh, go for a hike, go for, you know, try getting a fishing rod and throw in the lake and just, just play around with it and, and don't have crazy high expectations. Just, just try to enjoy that experience. So somewhere local, somewhat local to you that I would highly recommend, um, is, is the Adirondack park. Are you familiar with the Adirondacks? Yes. Um, I was kind of strangely lucky to have some family from New York that had a little cottage in the Adirondacks. And so every wow. summer we'd go out there and, um, I just, you know, have an unbelievable amount of great memories out there walking around the mountains, playing in the lakes, canoeing down the streams. Um, there's a lot of beautiful country out there. It's pretty accessible. 
It's plenty of family-friendly, easy hikes and lakes to check out and, and rivers to go play around in. Um, and that's, you know, a relatively short drive from, you know, from the East Coast for a lot of people. So that's when I would definitely recommend it. It's close and, and not too intimidating, but at the same time, you'll feel like, hey, I'm in a, this is, this is different. This is a wild place. Um, that's when I would definitely, definitely recommend. And it's, it's not a national park, but it certainly has the feel of that kind of scale to a degree when you hike on one of these trails and go a couple miles into the woods and get to the top of one of those mountains and you can look out over just a sea of green and, and rolling hills off in the distance you'll all of a sudden feel very small and and a part of something a whole lot bigger than you and and feeling that way not in a city but in a natural world where you're just kind of connected to the dirt and trees around you and that is a feeling that it, it i just can't be beat Nice. Now, for you, what what was what is your favorite uh, like national park or forest, and why? So, I think my favorite national park is Grand Teton National Park, and um, it's for several reasons. It's a park that's in western Wyoming. It's it's essentially right next to Yellowstone. They pretty much touch, um, but it holds a special place in my heart because. The very first trip I ever took out west to go see these national parks was um, just after I graduated college. My girlfriend and I uh, decided to take a road trip across the country because I took a job that required I start in California. So I had to drive across the country to California. Along the way, we thought, why don't we stop at three national parks and camp and hike and, and do all this stuff that we've always wanted to do, um, but we never had actually done it. So this is my first trip backpacking and hiking in the mountains and and seeing this stuff as an adult and grand teton was one of those national parks we went to and i'll just never forget driving towards the mountains there for the first time and seeing there was a storm coming across from the west and coming over the mountains and this but the sun was still shining behind it to one side so you had this orange sun setting behind the mountains and then the black storm clouds coming over the other side and just an unbelievable kind of sawtoothed skyline of mountains that just seems otherworldly. Um, actually, the cover of my book is of Grand Teton National Parks. So if you look at the cover of the book, you can see what I'm talking about. Yeah, and, I'm actually uh, looking at it right now. <laughs> yeah, so just a wow. unbelievably beautiful place. And, and that was one of those first places where I just felt like this has got to be a part of the rest of my life. Like just some part of me became a part of that place. And so we always returned back there as, as often as we could eventually was able to spend a few months at a time a year out there when we rented a little house and ended up proposing to my wife on a mountaintop right outside of there. Nice. Um, so yeah, now a lot of special family memories right there. And, uh, it's hard to beat the Tetons as far as just gorgeous mountains here in America. It's a uh, top of the bucket list for everyone. I'd, I'd highly recommend it to check it out. Nice. Now, it, speaking to you right now, it sounds like you might have a second book in you. Is, uh, is that something you uh, are thinking about working on or might be working on right now? Yeah, yeah, definitely have a second book in me. Um, I'm very early in that process, still, still trying to figure out exactly what that's going to look like. But yeah, I, I loved writing this book. It was, it was the hardest thing I've ever done, but it was the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. Um, so I want to write more books. I want to write a lot more books. And I think all of them will be, at least as of now, as far as I can tell, I think they will always be about 
experiences in these wild places and how we can conserve and protect them. Um, so wild animals, wild places, uh, that's, that's my love. And uh, I want to continue sharing that with others. Appreciate that. All right. So um, I'm going to wrap this up, but not without asking, um, is there any piece of advice that you could offer new hunters, new uh, fishermen, um, just new outdoors people in general? Yeah, um, so much. Um, I would tell you first and foremost, don't get hung up on the end result too much because it's it's not easy to figure this stuff out right away. It takes time. It took me years and years and years of hunting till I finally was able to get a deer. I mean, I was hunting since I was a little tiny kid and hunting on my own since I was like 13. And it took me, I think, six years till I got my first deer. Um, so it's, it's not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing to figure out how to fish. But if you can go into it with two things, with a drive to learn. So just be curious, learn, have fun with it. Just enjoy learning new things. If that can be a fun part of it and, and not be too focused on the end result, you're going to, you're going to have a great time. Um, that whole process, that journey, enjoying the new places you see, enjoying the new things you're trying, enjoying just being in a different setting and, and, and noticing the animals and the, the natural world around you. Just love it for that. And all the rest of the stuff will come. Um, I think that's first and foremost, probably the most important thing. And if you can do that without getting too hung up on your results and then just keep trying. So if you're trying to catch a fish or you're trying to bow hunt for deer, um, don't get discouraged. Just, just keep after it. Try to learn just a little bit more every day, get, get 1% better every day, every year. And, and you'll get there. And when you get there, when you do get your first deer, when you do catch your first fish and you get to, you know, eat, a meal that you were fully involved in, um, there, there's nothing better than that experience. And there's no more fulfilling way to feed your family than that kind of experience. And um, so I would just encourage everyone to have fun with it, stay curious, stay positive. Um, and, and anything I can do to help more people get involved and experience this thing, I want to do because it's, it's blessed me so much and I hope it can, can bless other people too. Nice. Thank, thank you, man. Um, now, with all that being said, um, please let uh, everyone know, you know, where they can find uh, your book, your podcast um, and your meat eater content. Yeah. So the book is called That Wild Country and you can find it on Amazon or most other places where you can buy books. Um, all of my other content, if you search for Wired to Hunt, you'll find it on just about any platform. So if you go on Instagram, it's Wired to Hunt. Twitter, search for Wired to Hunt. Same thing for Facebook. Um, all of my new articles and writing is on the Meat Eater website. So if you go to themeateater.com, that's where you're going to see my writing as well as um, our show, The Back 40, which is basically a TV show documenting um private land project where we are trying to improve a piece of private land for hunting and wildlife and documenting all the ups and downs of that. Um, so all of that's out there as well. Um, got a bunch of things going on and it's, it's all out there for folks to check out. All right. Well, thank you, Mark. I really appreciate you taking the time out to get on this call with me today. Um, I learned a lot. Um, and I know I'm fanboying a little bit, but I really like your content. 
um, whether it's on Instagram or the podcast or on uh, the Meat Eater site. Um, and love your book, brother. Hey, thank you so much for the opportunity and keep up the good work too. I think it's awesome to see you sharing your journey with folks and um, it's important and I'm excited to uh, see your hunting journey grow and, and hopefully you continue to have more and more success every year. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Right, so I just want to thank Mark for taking the time out to speak with me today. I really learned a lot in regards to public land and I hope you did too. So if you did and you really enjoyed this episode, please take a minute, uh, hook me up with a five-star rating. If you really, really liked it, take it a step further and, um, you know, hook up a review. And if you really, really, really enjoyed the episode, um, you know what? Share it. You know what I'm saying? Um, share the link to this podcast to friends and family. Um, anyone you think might be interested in learning about hunting. All right. You guys have a blessed one.